0: Turn with me in your Bibles to First Samuel chapter 15, where we're picking up, where we left off. First Samuel 15, we'll begin at verse 1. We'll ask the Lord for his grace. Now, Heavenly Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would help us understand these truths, and we know you want to speak to everyone you brought here tonight. Father, words of life, hope, and encouragement, even the words of correction will be life-giving. And so we open to your Holy Spirit. Uh, Speak to us. We're listening, and we want to obey. In Christ's name, amen. Well, incredible spiritual truths are waiting for us here tonight in chapter 15, a very pivotal chapter and a very well-known chapter at that. Uh, Sadly, these important truths are embedded in harsh circumstances and trauma and bloodshed. Uh, Unfortunately, an entire people group, the Amalekites, must be exterminated because of their wickedness and because they are bent on destroying Israel, the hope of the earth. God is going to bring a Messiah, Savior, God the Son, through these people, and it's very important that they exist. And secondly, uh, and Israel's first king, King Saul, also in this chapter, uh, must be harshly rejected by the Lord and lose his position and honor and calling as king because he's bent on disobeying God and living for himself. So unpleasant incidents Uh, to read about tonight, but invaluable insights to learn from. So, to refresh uh, the context for tonight's uh, sobering study, uh, Israel has just won a major and miraculous battle uh, over the ruthless Philistines who have been occupying them in their own country. Uh, They are outgunned and they are outnumbered. Uh, but they have managed to defeat their enemies because of the grace of God, and not because of King Saul, but thanks to the bold faith and courage of who his son Jonathan so now Jonathan for the for for his reward, is uh, now just escaping execution from his father 's attempt. Uh, the son Jonathan has done the unpardonable. He has upstaged his father and the men of Israel see him as the heroic faith-filled leader. And so Saul feels threatened. All rivals must go even if it's his own courageous boy. So as we saw last time, really to get the job done. He had called this bogus, uh, fast, and Jonathan violated that fast, uh, unbeknownst to him. And, um, King Saul has used this as a technicality to demand the execution of his own son. Now, the soldiers are outraged and they unite together to prevent Saul from actually carrying that out. And so that brings us up to tonight. Now, the Lord is really uh, patiently working with King Saul, giving him opportunities and to soften his heart, to get right with God, and to trust and obey. And and this chapter is his last chance. So let's see how he does. Verse 1. Samuel says to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from from Egypt. Now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. So we'll pause there and take a few moments to reflect on what a sobering thing to hear the Lord speak in this way. So if you're taking notes, Roman numeral number one, a clear command given. A clear command, horrific, but clear nonetheless. So it's God who is giving the command. So right away, Samuel has a word from the Lord to King Saul And it's very important that King Saul understand that this isn't coming from Samuel or from the elders of Israel, but from the Lord himself. And so he takes great pains here by the Holy Spirit to show us that. It's kind of reminiscent of what we're seeing in the letters to the churches in Revelation. When the Lord addresses these churches, as you've been seeing on Sunday morning, he's saying, hey, it's me, the son of God blazing eyes of fire, wielding a sharp, double-edged sword, so that they know that the word coming to them is coming from the authority of God himself. Now, the Lord's name is used three times in these couple verses. Uh, Verse 2, this is what God Almighty, in the Hebrew, it's Lord of hosts, which means the commander-in-chief of the armies of heaven is speaking. And so he really wants Samuel, uh, Sam, um, Saul, two S words there, he really wants Saul to understand, I, the Lord, the commander-in-chief of the armies of heaven, am bringing a well-deserved judgment on the Amalekites. Now, first of all, it's God who justifies his actions. So here in verse 2, a sobering text he says i will punish they are to be utterly destroyed seven times the hebrew word haram is used that word should bring back memories from our study through the book of numbers when the canaanites had to be utterly destroyed it was this word that was used Uh, they were wicked people their progeny their ability to reproduce Their possessions, their terrorism, their pagan idolatries, their immorality is to be removed from the earth. God had driven with these people for hundreds of years uh, to no avail. And so it's come down to this. Now, admittedly, it's easier to hear God's judgment in an impersonal way, which we deal with all the time without batting an eye. The flood The flood was impersonal. We didn't hear about the women and the children and the infants and the nursing moms, but there were. But when we hear it in a personal way, it's very disconcerting. Sodom and Gomorrah, they had wives. They had children. There were nursing moms there. In the Great Tribulation, Jesus makes a point and he says, how tragic that this judgment is going to fall and there are going to be pregnant women and nursing mothers. So it grieves God's heart. It's hard for us to hear these words, but it's just kind of the reality when judgment falls. It falls with a broader stroke than any of us sometimes realize. Now, seriously, the story of redemption really centers up on this. God himself hanging on a cross, being crucified. And so we shouldn't be too surprised at such harsh realities that we find here in the Old Testament. I think really God is holier than we know. Sin is worse than we think. Israel's survival more crucial than we realize, and our spiritual choices are more weighty than we could ever imagine. So he says, I will punish them because they deserve it. Uh, The Amalekites were desert marauders or terrorists. You can picture them, uh, nomadic tribesmen, terrorists. Picture the black hoods and the long executioner swords and the relentless cruelty because that's who they were. And the Lord reminds Saul and his army and us he says, you know what, this, is, this all started back when you guys were coming up out of Egypt and who attacked you but the Amalekites. In Exodus 17, you could read about that. But then Moses says in his last sermon before they enter the promised land, which is what Deuteronomy is. Deuteronomy, the entire book, is the couple days before they go into the promised land. Moses preaches three sermons. And that's what Deuteronomy is. And in those sermons, he says, remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came up out of Egypt, when you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and cut off all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. When the Lord your God gives you rest from all your enemies around you in the land he is giving you to possess as an inheritance, you shall blot out the memory of Amala- the Amalekites from under heaven. Do not forget. That's Deuteronomy chapter 25 and verses 17 and following. Now here's the thought here uh, that's quoted there. The Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. You see, it didn't just end there. He's not saying, you know, 500 years ago they did this nasty thing and now we got to wipe them all out. The idea is 500 years ago they did the nasty thing that they're continuing to do for 500 years. They are incorrigible. Incorrigible means not able to be corrected. The Amalekites stand really are a type of devil, unredeemable, a a type of a person who ends up perishing because there's just nothing that even God can do. And he looks at them and says, thy will be done. So yes, indeed, it was a 500-year-old offense, but it is something that the Lord has been dealing with, quote, from generation to generation. And so, you know, with those kinds of harsh words, I just want to explain and almost make a defense for the Lord in being so harsh. And so these people sowed the seeds of their own destruction. He's given them centuries to repent, and they will not, so it's judgment day. So the command is clear, Uh The command has justified, and now the war commences. Uh, Let's not move on before we remember this famous verse. God is patient, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. He nevertheless does not leave the guilty unpunished, unless, of course, they've had someone punished on their behalf, which would be us. So that's Exodus 34, 6. Patient, slow to anger, abounding in love, gracious, Faithful and kind—that's the Lord. Unless you want nothing to do with Him, and you're bent on doing evil and opposing Him, then here comes the war. Verse four through nine. So Saul summoned the men and mustered them at Telaim, two hundred thousand foot soldiers and ten thousand men from Judah. Saul went to the city of Amalek. And set an ambush in the ravine. Then he said to the Kenites, go away, leave the Amalekites so that I do not destroy you along with them. For you showed kindness to all the Israelites when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites moved away from the Amalekites. That was good. Verse 7. Then Saul attacked the Am- Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur to the east of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive. And all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak they totally destroyed. Roman numeral number two, Strike three, Saul, and you're out. The Amalekites aren't the only incorrigible ones in our text. King Saul is incorrigible as well. And it's game over for the Amalekites, and it's game over for King Saul. Now, this is the whole reason that Saul is in trouble Saul has already, two chapters ago, been handed a pink slip by Samuel saying, You know what? You're in trouble. You're, God's going to take this whole deal away from you. And, and here's what he said. You acted foolishly, Samuel said to Saul. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, who we're going to finally meet next chapter, and appointed him leader of his people because, here it is, because you have not kept the Lord's command. Now, you would think now, as he's been fired and rebuked from the Lord for not obeying God's command, that now that he's been given another command, kind of a second chance, That he would say, oh man, Samuel, wait until you see. I have learned. I want to keep my position in favor with the Lord. I don't want to see this come to pass. So come on, give me another chance. Give me another chance. And he gets it. And you would think he would carry out the command, especially when Samuel says, hey, listen, this is not from me. It's from the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. He's speaking to you. And here's what he's saying. He's saying that word haram. Haram means totally, 100%. You can't even pick up a penny from that place. Get it? And he says, "Got it." But not. Now I agree with McGee, J. Vernon, that is. But I left out the J. Vernon because I like the rhyme. <laughs> I agree with him. He said, "You know what? Uh, uh, poor guy Saul. He can't obey." Uh, Because he doesn't have saving faith. And uh, uh, Jay Vernon calls him a game player. He's a pretender. And he even calls him Satan's man. Now, verses 4 through 6, we see some positive attributes from King Saul. 4 and 5, he's a capable military leader. He's able to muster 210,000 soldiers. And he sets an ambush that's going to work. And secondly, in verse 6, you see he's a nice guy. I mean, he sees, oh, man, the Kenites, they're kind of, they're friends. We have no qualm with them. So he goes to the leaders and he says, listen, you guys are in danger of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. You're going to get killed in the crossfire. Get out of here. And so he's a nice guy. You know what? But as I've often pointed out to you, you don't have to be a ruthless monster void of any virtues to wind up at odds with God and perishing. Nice people who are very skilled and gifted at what they do end up perishing. Because it's not about being a nice person who's skillful or has some redeeming qualities. Your qualities can be redeemed but how about you? You have to be redeemed. And so, you know, it's hard to see some things good about him and know that he's an enemy of God. Do you know anybody that you look at and you say, wow, they've got some good character qualities, but they, but they just spit on anything to do with God, their conscience Uh, proclaiming that he exists, and they just don't want anything to do with God. And so the Kenites happily pull up their tent stakes and skedaddle for their lives. That was a good move. Verses 7 through 9, a two-verse concise synopsis given just enough about the battle to tell you that Saul disobeyed, doing his own thing. You know, Saul's M.O.? It's called Selective Obedience. Verses 7 through 8 says, look, he totally destroys the place. He goes in, except King Agag, he keeps him alive. And verse 9, the the best of the livestock, the really good stuff. But Saul and the army spared Agag, it says in your verse 9 there, the best of the sheep, cattle, fat calves, and lambs, everything that was good. Now, what is Saul thinking? Well, nobody really knows what's going on in his head about sparing Agag, but a couple of the commentators said, you know, he wants to show off um, to Israel. He'll look at you guys, look who we got here, look who I captured here. Or he wants Agag's respect. Here's this really famous king, and, and, and he's deciding whether he lives or dies. And so Agag is like kissing up to King Saul, and it just makes his ego feel really good that he's got this guy in tow. But we do know why he spares the choice livestock. Verse 9, it was valuable. It was plunder. Now, here's what I'm thinking was going through his head. Here's a picture for you. When he looked at all of the livestock, he was thinking... (laughs) USDA Premium Grade Certified Angus Beef. Guys, look at this, all of this stuff. And then he says, number two, he says, this is what's going through his head, the New York strip, all right? That's the New York strip, and then we've got the large porterhouse cut, and then we've got veal, you see in your text, it says fatted calf, you know what that is? Equals veal. It equals veal chops, and then rack of lamb. And now what is he thinking? He's seeking, he sees this. What's going through his head? My mom's recipe for that dry rub. The the cinnamon, the cumin, the paprika, the coriander, the cilantro, the black peppercorns. Are you telling me we're just going to haram? He knows what the word means. In other passages, haram means the devoted to God it goes to God there's no happiness here there's judgment you're not picking the hangman isn't gonna pick the pockets of the executed guy that he just executes because the guy's a murderer he doesn't go through his pockets and takes out some coins after he hangs them that it's no joy here you're not to profit but he sees all of this and he says oh thank you you can do away with the rack." Of lamb. Now, he'll deny all of this, of course. And when he sees the look on Samuel's face, when Samuel comes, he'll say in verse 21, Oh, we kept the choice livestock to offer to the Lord your God. Now, that's not what the word haram means. It means to offer to God. It means give it to him utterly. That's what the word means. And he knows that. So Saul and his men, following Saul's lead, hoping for a celebratory party. They have worked hard. They won the battle. They're famished. Such a waste to offer all the good stuff. Let's keep the livestock around. Let's see how it goes. Maybe we'll get lucky and have a barbecue. That's not a good way to think. Verses 10 through 21. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I am grieved that I have made Saul king because he's turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was troubled, and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, but he was told, get this, Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone down To Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I've carried out all the Lord's instructions. But Samuel says, What then is the bleating of sheep in my ears? What is the lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answers, Well, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and the cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God but we totally destroyed the rest. Stop, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel says, Although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And he sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people. The Amalekites make war on them until you've wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, whined Saul. <laughs> I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and and brought back Agag, Ag- a- I want to call him Agog, Agag, their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Okay, number three, busted. Saul's misadventure is coming to a close. So now we'll see God's broken heart. Samuel's broken up, too. The only one who isn't broken up, who's off having a party, building a monument to praise himself, is who? Saul, busy singing praises about himself. So now, uh, first of all, it's payday here in verse 11. But the Lord always wants you to know it's not a happy day when I have to do these things. I gave him lots of time. I'm not pleased. He says, I'm grieved. The King James has the word. Repentance, regret. I'm just sick of the whole thing. I wish it never happened kind of thing. And then it's not a happy day for old man Samuel either because he he loves this guy. I love what Pastor David Guzik says about this verse. He says, Samuel shows that he has God's heart. It hurt God to reject Saul and it hurt God's prophet to see him rejected. We are close to God's heart when the things that grieve him grieve us and the things that please God please us. And so Samuel gets up reluctantly the the next day to do the unpleasant task of confronting Saul with a devastating rebuke. And so he goes to find him, and he's not where Samuel expects him. He's on top of Mount Carmel there. He needs visibility for his monument, so he's up on the hill. And uh, notice that there's no shame, no guilt, no remorse. He knows what he's done, but uh, he's up on top of Mount Carmel Now, up Samuel goes to find him, and he does, and notice immediately, he says, as he says in verse 13, he sees Samuel coming, he he gets it, he knows exactly what he's done. He says, the Lord bless you. Oh, happy day. I've carried out all the Lord's instructions. Well, what an odd way to greet someone. It's called a guilty conscience. It gives itself away every time. Hi, praise the Lord. God bless you. And by the way, I've done everything you asked me to do. Of course you have. Saul, really, come on. Saul knows exactly why Samuel's there and he's going to start making his defense. Had he obeyed everything that the Lord had asked, he would never have to bring it up. It would be obvious don't have to bring it up right away he he knows he just wants to start making his case and samuel's really feeling perky so he fires back because saul's trying to pull the wool over his eyes sheep are there pull the wool over his eyes all right never mind verse 14 so uh he says look i did everything i was told to do and then he says that's funny If you did, I probably wouldn't be hearing all the sheep and the cattle in the background. And then what does uh, King Saul say? Oh, those. (laughs) Well, um, the, the soldiers, the soldiers did that. And here's what they were thinking, noble guys that we are. We would sacrifice them to, we would haram them. Oh, we would haram them now afterwards since we've been caught with it and we can't eat it. So we're going to haram it the second time now later to the Lord. Who's God? Your God. Because we love your God. Well, this guy, he's laying it on thick. And what does uh, poor Samuel say? He says, just stop. He interrupts him. Stop. Give me a break. I've heard this blame game from you and your lame excuses and your self-righteous protestations. That's a big word for whining. (laughs) (laughs) Deception and distortions. Please just stop. So Samuel's turned off. He interrupts Samuel's blabber fest and he says, look, be quiet. Let me tell you. What the Lord told me last night, verse 17. Samuel said, and here's what he said. Although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? Come on, the Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission saying, Go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Malachites. Make war on them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in his eyes? Well, uh, if you're taking notes still, Roman numeral number four, the tragedy of forfeited potential. Here's what the Holy Spirit's saying quickly here. He's saying none of this needed to happen. None of this should have happened. This is needless, senseless, and tragic. So here's what he's saying. He's saying God honored you. God took you when you were blind, an unbeliever, doing your own thing in this world, and he gifted you. He honored you. I mean, if we go to our spiritual application, he died for you. He's given you the Holy Spirit. He's made you a co-laborer with the Christ. He's given you status as a co-heir with God the Son. So this was needless. How could you? It's a rhetorical question. He's saying after how God has treated you, how can you disobey? How could you want to rebel and not do what the Lord has asked you to do? You would think when God has done this, although you were just a nobody and brought you into life and honor and privilege, that you would feel some kind of gratitude. Some kind of obligation to actually do as the Lord commands. What are you thinking? Lamb chops. Was it worth the lamb chops, man? Was it worth the few extra dollars? Was it worth the sexual thrill? He said none of this needed to happen. Of all the words of tongue or pen... These are the saddest it might have been. If only I didn't. Now, there's probably a hundred young people under 25 in this place tonight. And I just exhort you in the name of the Lord don't let it be said of you, if only she hadn't, if only he had. You have your whole life ahead of you. And to all of us here, there's no reason why we can't link in gratitude our obligation to our God after what he's done for us to say, you know what? I'm just going to obey him. Verse 20. He says, oh, but I did obey the Lord. Still, still to Samuel. Oh, but I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag their king. The soldiers uh, took sheep and cattle from the plunder and the best of what was devoted to God in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. So, Roman numeral number five, partial obedience equals complete disobedience. Now, Scottish preacher that I like to read. He's hard to read because of the Old English from the 1800s, Alexander McLaren. He wrote this. Partial obedience is complete disobedience. Saul and his men obeyed as far as it suited them. That is to say, they totally disregarded what God wanted, but did as they pleased, sparing the good and destroying the worthless. What was not worth carrying... They destroyed not because of the command from God, but to save them the time and trouble. Saul so here. When he's whining about almost doing everything right he says, but I did I did I did look at all the things I did. let's build a, 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 a column of all the things I've did that in that command. check, check, check. I went and did it, I fought and I killed all these guys and, and 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 so I and then here's a couple little things that I didn't do. It's kind of like asking a husband, have you obeyed?" Your marriage vows. And he says, almost all of them. Or, yeah, or he says, mostly. Have you been faithful? Have you obeyed the vow to be faithful? Mostly. Mostly. I don't think your wife wants to hear that. You know what? Mostly is a nice way of saying no. I have not. So to Saul's lie, that he was going to sacrifice it all to the Lord. Samuel responds in verse 22 and 23. his, His whole deal is, I was going to sacrifice and give it all anyway. So to that, he says, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of witchcraft or divination or fortune telling or sorcery and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. So Roman numeral number six, we're getting up there. Obedience, the foundation for faith, obedience. So we're not saved because we obey. We obey and show that we're saved. Jesus just scratches his head one time and just rolls his eyes and say, guys, why do you call me Lord, 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 and then don't do what I ask you to do? Just stop using kurios, kurios in the Greek, supreme ruler, supreme authority, Lord, Lord, this, Lord, this, and Lord, I pray, and Lord, Lord, all day long, Lord, Lord, Lord. Do you realize what you're saying when you open a prayer with Lord? That's his point. Is he really Lord? It's, it, here's what this whole passage means here. It's easier to write a check than to surrender my will. It's easier to go on a missions trip than to say no to my favorite sin. What we try to make up with uh, outward religious activity for what we lack in inner devotion and obedience. And the Lord says, come on, you could make (laughs) you could write uh, a thousand checks and put them in the offering or a thousand sacrifices unto God and work thousands of hours for God's service and give millions of dollars to his work. But all of those sacrifices mean little if there's not a surrendered heart shown by simple obedience. So don't miss this in verse 23. I like this verse. Rebellion is like the sin of witchcraft or divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Why does the spirit throw that in there? Well, partial obedience sounds so much innocuous or harmless than witchcraft. So, so I would rather say, oh, I just really fell short or I didn't do exactly what God is asking me to do. When it's in the Bible and I know I'm supposed to do it and I don't do it, I have lots of ways to describe that. But one of them is not witchcraft, I don't think of myself as having gone to a fortune teller, paid her some money, and then practiced with her or doing a seance. See, we, he just wants him to know, you just have all these nice ways of saying what you do and don't do for God and, and all your nice euphemisms, nice way to say something that's a little bit not nice. But let me tell you how God looks at it. He says that kind of pride... For you to be able to look at God's word, know in your heart what he's asking you to do as it's put out in the word. And for you with the pride and arrogance, next verse, to choose. This I'll do, but this I won't do. He says that kind of pride is like worshiping other gods. That's what idolatry is. So he has two thoughts. He says, next time you decide that you know what, I know the right thing to do, I know the command, here's the scripture, you know what, I'm not doing it. Just know that it's like witchcraft and breaking the first commandment is worshiping other gods. That's hard to hear. I told Barb tonight, pray for me. This is the most convicting chapter personally, for me, in the whole Bible. This has always been For 30 years, this chapter just fires arrows. Because who obeys all the way? Does anybody? Don't raise your hand because then you're disobeying another time. (laughs) Yes, I do. Liar, you disobey. (laughs) You see? And so, uh, it's just... I I come away thanking God for the cross and his grace and wanting to obey. And, and, And the Lord, I'm just cutting to the chase here, the Lord makes obeying so easy when he says, you know what, if you just live a life of love, you'll obey the commands. Love me with everything you've got and love others with the same intensity that you love yourself with and you'll end up obeying. So let's move on. we got a little bit more. Verse 24. Finally, the seriousness of Saul's situation kind of hits him. Then Saul says to Samuel, I have sinned. Those three little words, Saul, it took you so long. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. And here's the truth. I was afraid of the people and I gave in to them. Now I beg you. Forgive my sin. He's talking to Samuel. And come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You've rejected the word of the Lord. And the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. As Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught hold of the hem of his robe. And it tore. Samuel said to him, yeah, the Lord has torn The kingdom of Israel from you today and given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. He who is the glory of Israel doesn't lie or change his mind. He's not a man that he should change his mind. It's over. Saul replies, I've sinned, but please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God So Samuel went back with Saul, and Saul worshiped the Lord. Number seven, too little, too late. You know, he starts out really good. He he starts out here uh, confessing his sins, and then he goes south. He blames peer pressure. Then he wants Samuel to fix it. Oh, please forgive me. And he's talking to another man. Why don't you just ask God to forgive you? Your sin is against God but he just still doesn't get it. Then he's concerned about his image. Oh, don't, you got to come to the church service because what will everybody think about me? He's more concerned about his honor and his influence over Israel than sinning before the Lord. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret But worldly sorrow brings death. And there's a worldly sorrow means you're sorry this whole thing didn't work out the way you wanted it to. Yeah, you're sorry. You're sorry you've upset people. You're sorry for this. You're sorry for that. Judas was sorry in the same way. Tears the whole nine yards. But it's a worldly sorrow. It's not a repentance. You see, there's a difference there. All right, so Saul clings to Samuel who wants to leave and says I'm not going to church with you. This is it's over and he turns to leave and Saul clings to the hem of his garment and rips it and he's standing there holding a piece and and the and and Samuel says yeah, exactly. God's going to do that to you because of your contempt for the Lord. So apparently in verse 31 Samuel reconsiders going with Saul um, because he doesn't want to see a big chaotic uh, pandemonium happen to the people in the congregation waiting for their king. And so he says he acquiesces. He says, okay, let's go worship the Lord. Verse 32 and to the end and we're done. Then Samuel said, okay, so they're, they're at the worship service. And surprise, this elderly godly Samuel says, Bring me Agag, king of the Amalekites. Agag came out to him confidently, thinking, Surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so will your mother be childless among women. And Samuel put Agag to death before the Lord at Gilgal. Then Samuel left for Ramah, but Saul went up to his home in Gibeah of Saul, Until the day Samuel died, he did not go to see Saul again, though Samuel mourned for him, and the Lord was grieved that he had made Saul king over Israel. Last point, manning up. If Saul won't do it, the elderly high priest will. Now, as a way to close out tonight and a way of spiritual application, all believers have the struggle to put King Agag down because King Agag, as many theologians and church fathers and church scholars have seen, he's a type of our sinful nature that needs to be utterly destroyed. He existed. He's a real life person. But the Lord takes these kind of characters and teaches us through them. So Agag represents the sinful nature. F.B. Meyer, a contemporary of D.L. Moody back in the 1800s, wrote this. We are prepared to obey the divine commands up to a certain point, and there we stay just as soon as the best and the choicest begin to be touched. We draw the line and refuse further compliance. We listen to the soft voices that bid us to stay our hand, when Isaac is on the altar. And so King Agag, he he stands for our darling sins, the devoted things that we let live, the greed, idolatry, lust, lying, stealing, and gossip, the things that we just allow. Colossians 3 and verse 5, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. And there you have it, just a call to execute, to haram all of these king agags and the best of the sheep and the fatted calves or whatever it is that it's your thing that you think it's okay to deal with. The thing about letting Agag live is because Agag will come back to cause you great harm. So God is not trying to be a killjoy. He's trying to protect you and to keep you blessed. Because unbelievably, in this narrative, you will find that even though King Agag is slain before the Lord, Saul did not kill all of them because one of Agag's sons has children. And later on, about 400 years of them reproducing, there's a character named Haman who is number two in the Persian empire in the book of Esther. And Haman is called an Agagite. He is a descendant of this man and this man's sons. He hatches a plot to destroy every Jew on the planet. He came this close to having it done. Without the Jews, you don't have a savior, and we're all lost. God knew what he was saying. I need all of them to go away because the future is at stake, you see? Not only did an Agagite almost destroy our chances at heaven, but also was the last one to put a sword through whom? King Saul fell on his own sword, but he didn't do a good enough job. And then an Amalekite comes by And finishes the job. 2 Samuel chapter 1. It's an Amalekite. There's supposed to be no Amalekites left. Remember? Every last one. And see here's the spiritual truth. What you let live in disobedience to God's command. To put that thing to death. It will come back. And it will do you in. As it is seen in 2 Samuel. Samuel. Chapter one, we find out, well, the claim is the Amalekite is the one who ran him through. And so in, in just reflecting now on this most sobering uh, passage, just that to obey the Lord in love in all things, to put to death the misdeeds of the body by the power of the Holy Spirit and to trust the Lord and to obey him and to not fall for the temptations of our own sinful nature that say, oh, come on, you don't have to destroy this or be so extreme, but to live a life of trust and obedience. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this convicting chapter where, Father, we all know we fall short and we're we're very much inclined to disobey so, Father, help us through the truths expressed so clearly in this chapter, through Your Word, to, to walk with You in obedience. The only way we could do that is through the power of the Holy Spirit. Father, thank You for the Word that says, "If you walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the desires of the sinful nature." Father, it's so easy to stay in close fellowship with you to be in your word and to be filled with the holy spirit to walk in love help us to do that and when we disobey father to own it to repent to confess and to ask you to cleanse us and heal our hearts and teach us from those experiences in jesus name amen